took a trip to Montreal last summer. Great city. Highly recommend it. Food is amazing. Uh, culture is amazing. History, the whole deal. I, I knew that going in because I had gotten great reviews from tons of people. It was a great speakeasy there. If you're headed that way, reach out to me and I will send you the recommendation. There's a museum there, which I, I apologize. I can't remember the name for those of you looking for tips. But it's some sort of science avant-garde museum there. And I ended up going, paid a decent chunk of money for a virtual reality experience involving the art there. Essentially, they take famous paintings that are a little bit edgy and create movies out of them. Of course, the museum doesn't do this. Uh, accomplished movie people, indie movie people create these things. And we sat through the old lady and I in the chair next to me. And I were the only people there out of about 20 seats. And we watched separately, of course, because uh, we're in diff different headsets, different personal worlds. Watched three or four of these short films. And it was such a great experience seeing these paintings come to life. Like you're actually in the art while there's some intense plot or background music to set the stage. The best one was this painting picturing a boat delivering a passenger somewhere. And as you stare at the painting, it becomes clear that the deliverer is death and the passenger is going to the island of lost souls. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life. My road to becoming a Navy SEAL was somewhat circuitous. I did not get there by the direct path by any means. Like many SEALs, those who are successful going through the training and all the other rigors to actually become a full-fledged Navy SEAL who deploys after what is a 90 plus percent attrition rate from beginning to end is all started with me meeting a SEAL guy who was a stepdad of someone that I swam with in high school. I'd gotten into the Naval Academy, West Point, and Air Force Academy. And I was already leading towards the Naval Academy for a variety of reasons. It didn't hurt that they recruited very heavily and had a number of former Naval officers. Granted, they were all uh, very old World War II guys. And this is in the early to mid 90s. Didn't also hurt that Naval bases tend to be in sunny areas on the coast. So had that going for it. And I already knew I wanted to be a SEAL. Plus, when I had visited West Point, it was just drab and boring. I think I mentioned that before on the podcast. It was the middle of winter. Everything is gray there. Lots of tradition. Lots of great people have graduated from there and become heroes, done a lot for America, been successful in politics and business everywhere else. But the real thing that pushed the Naval Academy to the top of the list was that I knew why I wanted to become a SEAL. Granted, I probably wasn't as focused 100% on 
as I should have been while I was there, even though I did know it's what I wanted to do. I, I probably didn't, if I'm being honest with myself, do everything I could to succeed at that. There's this event at the Naval Academy. There are similar things at the other service academies called service selection. It's a little weird because people think of a service as the Navy, Army, Marine Corps, even Coast Guard. Those, these are all services in a sense, but within the Navy, there's kind of a notion of a service too. This would be like a military occupational specialty for the Army or Marine Corps, MOS. You have choices of being a pilot, being a Marine at the Naval Academy. Yes, the Marines are part of the Navy, so you can be a Marine out of the Naval Academy. You could be a SEAL. And there are a host of other things too. Submariner, which some people like to call submariner. I'm even told that it's the correct pronunciation according to some admiral from the 1980s. But I'm going to stick with submariner. I mean, it's below the surface. It's below the Marine. On service selection night, after a host of interviews and test scores and physical tests and medical exams that evaluate how good your genes were more or less because everyone's 21 years old and very in shape at that point. So if your eyes are screwed up or your heart is screwed up, it's just bad genes to thank. I passed all of those things, mostly with flying colors, had good academics. But at the end of the day, I did not get chosen for the SEAL teams out of the Naval Academy. I ended up getting SWO, Surface Warfare Officer. At that point in my life, I had been pretty lucky. Grew up with a nurturing family, got to go to college for free, got to play a lot of sports, have a lot of fun. Hadn't been picked on in my young days. But despite those reasons, I can still say that evening that I found out I was going to be aboard a ship as a surface warfare officer and not going to BUDS, basic underwater demolition seal training, was the worst day of my life. I've talked before how the Severn River, which runs alongside the beautiful Naval Academy campus in Annapolis, Maryland, was named by myself as the River Styx because I could envision all of us as lost souls there on the academy ground, living miserable existences. And on service selection night, I could imagine giving a coin to the boatman to bring me to my afterlife aboard ship. From the long arm of the law. Hiring is one of those things they don't teach you about in business school. Of course, there's lots they don't teach you about business in business school. A lot of practical things are missing. I think hiring is like trading in souls in some ways. Their future is in your hands and you've got a kind of dictatorship over people 
in an employment scenario. With whims like the gods, you can be fickle as a boss with no logic or principle needed. You can be a virtual psychopath reveling in their subservience, eye twitching out of mental instability, looking for control and fealty above all else. The game is unpredictable and employees are kept guessing, yet they play the game because they have to. They cast lots for their futures, but they're all really damned, aren't they? They pray to the gods and they beg for forgiveness, but they've already sold their soul to Hades. People often reply to those who bristle as employees with the refrain that everybody's really working for someone. If you're an entrepreneur, you're working for investors or your customers as even the CEO of a large corporation, you've got a board of directors, you've got shareholders, or you've even got your family at home that you're the breadwinner for. Or maybe in the end, you're just working for the government, paying them taxes. But really, these, I think, are hollow and just said for the point of making the sayer feel better about their own situation. And even those we idolize, like professional athletes, they still, when they're under contract, have a lot of obligation to abide by that contract, even when they're traded. Granted, there could be all sorts of clauses in there. And frankly, I mean, some people nerd out about the business of sports, about contracts, about trades. Uh, it's kind of this meta nerding out, if you will, about sports that has always sort of confused me. I could see commentators doing it, but uh, it's, it's a next level obsession for those who do. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only guy who doesn't really understand what someone being on waivers is. <laughs> I kind of know, but I can't exactly explain it. So if anyone thinks I owe them my man card, uh, feel, feel free to just call me out on Instagram. I have learned a lot, <laughs> as a side note, about the business of sports through the uh, Mets podcast, Shea Anything. That's after Shea Stadium. And uh, my mom's from Queens from New York. And uh, so that's how I adopted the Mets being in Florida. But I've learned from them that my original assumption was true about the nature of professional athletes just not being that different than that of an ordinary employee when it comes down to where they go and how much they play, what their scope is. Now, granted, they get paid more. They're in the limelight, which for those who are seeking fame, that's a good thing. And hopefully they're doing the job that is fun and they want to do all their lives. But ultimately they're serving a king or a queen just like the rest of us. I talked about Lord in the last podcast, episode number 20, Teams and Shit. Lord fancies herself, approvably so in my opinion, as a queen in some of her songs. There's a song that I didn't reference last time, which is Tennis Court, or at least I think it's called Tennis Court, which is an awesome song. She's got a line in there that's particularly poignant saying, you can be the class clown, I'll be the beauty queen in tears. 
which by the way, I used to <laughs> think that she was saying for some reason, beauty queen in Sears. I was picturing her getting a uh, glamour shot by Deb in the uh, Sears photo lab. So that, that shows how, how old I am <laughs> that I think about families getting photos of Sears and that Lord would possibly sing about that. Although by the way, we discovered in the last episode that Lord is a New Zealander, a Kiwi, like someone else we've talked about on the show in episode number 19, Go, Jermaine Clement. I really want to see a collab between those two. That would be amazing. Maybe in a cartoon voiceover form. For that reason, I will just blame my misunderstanding of tennis court on Lord's New Zealand accent. Lawman is putting into my run. Harley Quinn is a particularly compelling character. We could do probably a whole show analyzing why that's the case. Of course, is it the acting? Is it the sexualization? Is it the movies themselves? Is it the fact that she is mentally unhinged? It helps that Harley Quinn is featured interacting with tons of other famous characters throughout comic history and movie history, including the likes of Poison Ivy, another favorite of comic nerds, um, more probably in comics and cartoons more than the movies. Although Uma Thurman did a pretty good job, I'd say. We talked about teams, the nature of teams, the definition of teams, again, in the last episode. Obviously, Harley Quinn is featured in Suicide Squad, a team, a motley crew. Can you imagine compiling a team like that? It's a bit of a formula. Those who are a little older or maybe into war movies, there's not that many people in war movies these days, I feel like. Not that that's a bad thing. There's a classic movie called The Dirty Dozen, which if people haven't seen the movie, they've probably at least heard the title from their dads or grandfathers. Where rapists and murderers, people behind bars are taken out of prison to go on a likely suicide mission, being dropped behind enemy lines, Nazi Germany, towards the end of World War II or something like that. Similar with Suicide Squad. In reality, though, the workplace is not made up of such colorful personalities. There's not such diversity. The workplace preaches diversity all the time to a religious extent. But in reality, you don't get that kind of diversity. You get diversity that's much more superficial. Skin color, age, perspectives, gender, all those things. And, and that's, that's okay. That's, that's actually a good thing for many reasons. But if we're talking about true effectiveness and we're talking about true fairness, getting the most out of our people, shouldn't we maybe try and push the boundaries a little more? Now, ultimately, I'm not advocating for bringing criminals into your enterprise. The likes of those depicted in The Dirty Dozen and Suicide Squad would be uh, catastrophic, to say the least. Characters like Harley Quinn 
and poison ivy would indeed be poisonous in your organization. But there may be a version of bringing in more diverse characters, skills, passions into your organization through hiring processes if only those processes were suited to that end result. There's a notion on Wall Street where I traded commodities briefly right out of business school. There's a notion of being risk neutral. This is a wonky concept by name, but it's actually not that hard to understand. You and I in our personal lives, we are all risk averse. We are more fearful of loss than we are seeking gain. Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow talks about this a little bit and substantiates it with more data than I have myself. When you're investing though, it's important to be risk neutral when you have lots of capital backing you because you make very poor decisions when you're risk averse. You can make much better decisions when you're risk neutral. And when you have lots of cash in the bank of the company behind you, then you can afford to make those better decisions. Whereas if you are strapped for cash or have maybe a different position in the organization, then you act as if you have more to lose. Hiring managers are anything but risk neutral. They are risk averse. And HR people are equally risk averse. I think it's a death match between hiring managers and HR people to see who can be more risk averse. I've seen both sides of the spectrum there. Most of the time, the average hiring manager's goal is to not look stupid and to not bring in someone that they will lose their reputation over. They're essentially buying insurance with every hire. Everything they do in that process is designed to not screw up. And I did play a lot of tennis growing up. And when you play any sport, especially a sport requiring a lot of motor control, when you play not to mess up, then you're playing a very different form of that game than that which is required to win. It's what I used to call scared tennis. And so similarly, if you are scared when you shoot a weapon or if you're scared when you're at bat at the plate in baseball, those have similar consequences. You will end up striking out more than you might think. And in business, there's that problem of the unseen that we've talked about before where you don't see the trade-offs because you don't see the counterfactual. Plus, when you're at, at bat, when that pitch comes by, you get one to, let's say, 10 pitches if you foul a bunch off. Eventually, something is going to happen and that something takes between 10 seconds and five minutes for a really long at bat. Whereas the results for a higher play out over a much longer period of time, sometimes years. So in Wall Street speak, we'd say that they were buying insurance. They're buying puts. 
They're not looking for call options. They're not looking for lottery tickets. Sometimes they might buy a utility uh, to carry on the metaphor and beat it to death, occasionally a blue chip, but they're not investing in innovation generally. Even those in big tech companies, they're looking for someone who fits a script, someone who fits a mold, even in an innovative area. They're not looking for an innovative player, someone who plays the game differently or more aggressively than usual. There are no VCs of hiring. Venture capitalists will be satisfied by hitting a home run one out of 10. Meanwhile, nine can lose. But they're taking very big bets. They're not trying to get in, in the, the sort of baseball business speak. They're not trying to get singles and doubles. They're trying to cash out big on innovation. Maybe companies should have that approach when they hire. Taking big bets, involving more Internships, more try before you buy, as I call it, in the world of hiring. Maybe they should value people being great at one or two things instead of being equally good at many. Or you could totally change the process from what is the usual pattern in companies. There might be little differences that seem big, but like many things, like politics, if you're in it every day reading about your view and let's say the American system, given that's at least where your host is, shout out to my Scandinavian listeners, you tend to get a very myopic, 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 I've always said myopic, view of what is normal and what your options are. I used to be a political junkie. I've been on a political hiatus, as I call it, I should just call it political retirement at this point because it's been four or five years since I have not read political blogs, watched political news, listened to political podcasts at all. The thought of it just makes me anxious and disgusted. But by backing away, I was able to truly see, even though I had heard it all my life from sort of <laughs> those people in the middle or independents on the sidelines, always harping about how, well, both, there's not that much difference between both parties. And I can see that so much more now that, that I'm out of it. So the differences between how companies hire really aren't very big at all. And there could be a lot of innovation there. Perhaps what's needed is a barbell strategy. So a barbell strategy in investing is taking some wild bets with a portion of your portfolio while having the rest in ultra-stable investments as close to cash as possible or hard assets, but really taking some wild bets as well to bring some upside opportunity. Not to go into portfolio theory there, but there are some benefits in terms of diversification and your exposure to upside. And I wonder if that extends to souls in your company as well. Hiring today consists of proxies for things to the extent that someone isn't just trying to protect themselves. They are still trying to find data to support. And data is a very powerful thing, but it can be wielded very poorly. I'm tempted to extend the metaphor of technology to data itself, which is Data is a great slave, but a terrible master. 
So when people hunt on resumes only for the specific quotes that they're looking for in order to figure out if someone can do a job, that's such a pessimistic view of human capability. And in my view, such an antiquated view, but yet throughout our economy, it persists. Plus, people who are applying to a job in your company, they were constrained just like you are. They could be the next Steve Jobs, but if their boss was a jerk or paranoid or wouldn't resource them, was afraid he or she would be shown up, if there were other assholes who were getting in their way, who maybe you have a better culture and they don't have to deal with that and they'll do much better, you really have no way of knowing. They were hemmed in in so many ways, just like you were. And if the tides of resources and market flow didn't go the way that it could have on the upside, they might come off looking like an average Joe. All those fills you heard were from the band Sticks, the song Renegade. It's a little cheesy in the verse, but the chorus isn't bad for such an old song and such a mixed era in terms of song production and the quality of the music and how it holds up. I like to think that I acquitted myself well as a SEAL officer. I have every reason to believe that. There were missteps along the way. At times, I wasn't prepared. But in the end, I think I was a good hire. Maybe we can find ways to change that hiring process everywhere so that we're not just transporting souls on boats to the afterlife where they are constrained, at least temporarily. Maybe, maybe your company is purgatory. As I sat there in that chair in that museum in the basement in Montreal next to a, an 80-year-old French-speaking woman, you're really in it. It's virtual reality. The music's pumping into your ears. I'm watching the boatman bring a passenger to the island of Lost Souls, and it turns out the passenger is me. What I didn't realize at that time as I sat in that chair was that I had contracted poison ivy a week or two before this vacation I had been looking for. As my eye was in the VR headset, started to throb. I could feel my pulse in my eye. I had trouble keeping it open. My skin on my leg was crawling. I didn't know what the problem was, but I knew it itched and burned like crazy. And the more I rubbed it, the more it hurt, the more it bothered me. And I sat there writhing in my seat, eye twitching like a psychopath. And now is that time of the podcast where we strip off our chains, 
bid the boatman goodbye and get all the way wet. Footnote number one, I grew to really like the character Poison Ivy in Batman, the animated series. For those of a particular age, it was a great, great, great after-school cartoon. And the best thing about it was it was sort of a noir version of a superhero. And to that date, Batman had largely been a kind of cheerful character. There are exceptions. Michael Keaton's performance was great, but still not like the Sea Bale, the Christian Bale, Chris Nolan sort of Batman. So Batman the Animated Series, if you've got kids, and uh, I do, I, I'm going to introduce mine to that series. Uh, but in retrospect, it almost feels like it's too dark, so I'm, I'm going to have to check up on that. But uh, it was pretty amazing. Footnote number two on the subject of Harley Quinn. Suicide Squad was an ensemble cast. Tons of great names in there. One of them is Scott Eastwood. And I, I hadn't really been that familiar with Scott Eastwood. I just moused over his name as I was preparing for this episode. And predictably, he's the son of Clint Eastwood. Interestingly, Scott Eastwood used a different name early in his career to avoid nepotism. That's how the article I read said it. I think it's really the appearance of nepotism. But apparently he auditioned for every one of Clint Eastwood's movies once he became an actor and even got declined from one or two. I guess Clint Eastwood, by all appearances, sounds like a stand-up guy. And perhaps he delegated most of the authority to the casting director and crew. By the way, for you ladies in the audience, uh, Scott Eastwood looks like quite the good-looking gentleman, um, perhaps to rival... Uh, the Helmsworth brothers. Uh, I mean, I'm not a woman, but uh, I, I, I'd probably go with Scott Eastwood over them. So check him out if you're not familiar. Suicide Squad was directed by David Ayer, who also directed a great movie called Fury. What I love about that movie is it features tank battles and the many heroes who fought in those battles and died in World War II, tanks were such a, an important part of World War II, but they're only featured sort of tangentially in most movies, and Fury takes that story, that collective story, head on. Notable actors in that are John Bernthal, who was in Punisher, and Shia LaBeouf, who I am not a Shia LaBeouf fan, but damn, he deserved a supporting actor Oscar for Fury. He plays a character with a nickname Bible. He's got an incredible stash, which if you haven't seen my stash from Iraq, I posted it on Instagram, at Shri the Warrior Poet. I think that was Shia LaBeouf's best movie. Fury, check it out. That's all for today, folks. Hiring is a ground where there's so much low-hanging fruit, so much opportunity for innovation. It's grown extremely stale. And maybe in this time of coronavirus and quarantine, we can all figure out ways to push that envelope and get advantage, get better results, and ultimately have a better experience for our people. Till next time. 
Warrior Poet is a property of Rainiac Productions. If you like The Warrior Poet, there's more great content on Instagram. Follow Shri, The Warrior Poet, on Instagram. That's S-R-I, The Warrior Poet. You can also get to know me on a personal level by following Shri, actually, on Instagram as well. The Warrior Poet is produced by Laddie, with special contributions by Spoonman and me, Shri. No, 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 Kevin. Mina do it. Spita.